Over the course of his career, Mark Calabria has been a Senate staffer, chief economist for the Vice President of the United States, and director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Now we can add one additional title, author. Dr. Calabria has written Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. In this episode of the Arch Mortgage Insurance Policy Cast, I chat with Mark about the steps he took as director of the FHFA to keep the housing market operating during such a stressful time. What did he learn from being a senior banking committee staffer during the Great Recession that would guide his decision-making as FHFA's director? How did he collaborate with other policymakers to align their visions on ways to protect homeowners and renters? How did Fannie and Freddie step up to help solve the crisis? He answers those questions and more in this episode. And for good measure, Mark has agreed to return to the policy cast for a follow-up conversation about the strengths and weaknesses of mortgage regulation in the U.S. Mark Calabria, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the first of a two-part Arch Mortgage Insurance Policy Cast podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Kurt, it's really a pleasure to be here. Well, today we're going to take a deep dive into how housing survived the, the pandemic, which you recount in your new book, Shelter from the Storm, how a COVID mortgage meltdown was averted. And we'll tackle the, some broader home uh, uh, and housing-related issues in our follow-up podcast. So, so Mark, let, let's start at the beginning. Where were you when news of the uh, spreading pandemic broke out? It's a great question because, you know, I, I begin the book in January 2020, which is, you know, at the point where we were all starting to hear, I mean, maybe even as far as December, but the book starts in January 2020 with, with kind of the lockdown in Wuhan and the first American case was announced. And I try to, at the beginning, to convey that uncertainty, you know, was this going to get worse? Was it going to get better? Um, you know, the, the action, if you will, uh, picks up certainly in March. Um, you know, and we had already, uh, FHFA, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, had already been on a telework exercise for a couple of days before the federal government went, went, went locked down and shut down, partly because we were concerned that we would end up in a similar. And so I would really look at the end of January and then the middle of March really is kind of the flashpoints. And again, March was when it really became real, if if you will, for me. Um, but again, January, February, we're really asking questions about and preparing and trying to figure out, you know, was this going to be something um, that was going to be pretty serious and pretty big? Or was this going to be something localized? I mean, we all kept in mind MERS and SARS and, you know, previous pandemics that had stayed concentrated to Asia. So we were still trying to figure out how bad this was going to get and whether it would come in. Yeah, I mean, so so everyone kind of thought, okay, it's a health issue, but what were your first instincts uh, as a housing regulator? When, when did you start getting concerned at WOA? Great, great question. So for us, and maybe as a reminder for everybody, between February and May, we lost 22 million jobs in 2020. Um, I mean, that's unprecedented and, and hope that, that the record that's never beaten again. And to put that into comparison, over the course of the Great Recession post-2008, we lost about 9 million jobs in two years. So keep in mind, 22 million jobs in two months versus 9 million jobs in two years. 
So for us, when the job market really started to decline with the lockdowns, and we started to see evidence even before the lockdowns of pullbacks, you know, people started going out less and, and you started to see early indicators in the job market. And you simply don't have that kind of job loss without housing distress. Uh, you know, and, and, and that was honestly even true in 2008. You know, a lot of the conversations focus on mortgage products and such, but you know, a lot of what drove mortgage distress in 2008 was job loss uh, as well. And so when we started to see that level of job loss, we were like, wow, this, this, this could really be something that brings down a lot of distress on the housing market. Uh, even if we noticed very early on, it was predominantly renters. So even I think by the middle of March, late March, you know, our est- early estimates were 40% of the job loss was going to be uh, households with mortgages. And so half renters and another 10% households, homeowners without mortgages. Uh, and so we really looked at this and said, how do we help create a bridge? So, so Mark, let, let's go back a little further in, in time, because uh, you experienced uh, as a member of the, the Senate uh, st- uh, Banking Committee staff, uh, the, the previous recession in the, in the uh, OATS. Um, and, and I was wondering, you know, what did you learn from, from that experience uh, that, you know, led you to do what you did and, and maybe said, listen, we don't want to do this, which we did in, uh, in the Great Recession? Thank you for for setting up probably what is the core theme of the book. As you mentioned, I was staff on the Senate Banking Committee 2008, and I think I'm quite um, candid in the book that I think a lot of the 2008 response um, was not well designed. Uh, Ham part, many of these programs took forever for borrowers to get in, a lot of paperwork, a lot of fraud, uh, apparently by both probably lenders and borrowers, and all sorts of structural problems. So my takeaway from 2008 was, you know, if by chance I find myself in a similar decision-making position, I would do it very differently. And of course, as fate would have it, here I was. Uh, So part of the book is the lessons I learned from 2008 and how we did it differently. So I think this is an important theme. One of the reasons the mortgage market was not, was the shoe that didn't drop in 2020 is because we did things differently. Obviously, it's hard to say how much of this is attributable to what we, what we did, but I do think the decisions we made. So first of all, you know, we were in a pandemic and I remember it very much 2008, what I would, what I called the paper chase, which was, you know, that amount of paperwork that lenders made borrowers who wanted mitigation and it went back and forth and paper got lost and it took a long time and, you know, it took you months to get in. Um, I didn't necessarily think in March 2020 that we were going to be at this for years. It was going to be something where, A, whatever assistance was needed was going to be probably three to six months, not years. Uh, and it was going to be short-term liquidity. And also, because there was such rapid job loss, uh, whatever income information you would get from bars would be stale. I mean, what does your 2019 earnings tell us about what's really happening in your life um, in April 2020, for instance? So for those reasons, you know, we immediately decided that we would use what I called the honor system. We would let borrowers call their servicer and say, um, you know, I've suffered a job loss or income loss, and then we'll put you in. And keep in mind, all of this was set up probably three, about three weeks before the CARES Act passed. And so our initial intention was we'd get you in and we'd call you three months later 
and then start documenting and checking on you. So it, it would be a get you in first, document later, rather than document first, get you in. Uh, and of course, the CARES Act extended the amount of timeline um, and, and was a little more generous than we were, but the intent was to get people in quickly. Let me, let me ask you, interrupt here just more. Did, did it worry you that this honor system was being used? Have we ever, ever really seen much of that in uh, in public policy? It, it worked for us because we we offset it. So I, I describe it as we were very generous on one margin because we were stingy on other margins. And this is certainly something that we were concerned that people would abuse. Uh, certainly the data is at the time I left FHFA, Fede and Freddie suggest very little strategic forbearance. Most of the borrowers who took it needed it to some degree, and many who took it uh, even paid throughout. But it was a real concern that people could have abused it. Uh, you know, I think that was a thing we tried away. And one of the things I try to do in the book is be is to be candid about the uncertainties and trade-offs we were facing. There were times we rolled the dice. I mean, I calculated risk, in my opinion, uh, and some of those you had to take and some of those you can learn from. But as the economists would say, we made these uh, programs incentive compatible. And what I mean by that is we made it easy to get in and easy to use, but we made it tough. We made it tough to abuse, not from a monitoring standpoint, from an incentive standpoint. So, for instance, you were expected and told you were going to pay it all back. We weren't forgiving anybody's mortgage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was all going to get tacked on to the end. And we made that very clear. I did a, a little bit of media at the time telling people, if you don't need this, don't take this. That, that may be a first in public policy. Policymaker actually telling people not to use a program if they don't need it. Um, but we wanted to make sure we were triaging in the process and focusing on those most in need. When you were modeling, could you have possibly imagined the number of uh, borrowers who would continue to pay even though they kind of chose to go into forbearance? I think we were very pleasantly surprised that the number who continued to pay, which was around a fourth, I really do want to emphasize a broader point. Uh, what we saw in the Fannie and Freddie book was certainly very different than, say, FHA, which saw much higher numbers and stayed high for much longer. And it's certainly a very different book. So I, just for the entire conversation, I want listeners to keep in mind, almost all of my comments are really about Fannie and Freddie, which are different than, than other parts of the mortgage market. Uh, so we were pleasantly surprised. I was pleasantly surprised we had a very large number, probably about 15%, that rolled out after a month, very about a third rolled out after three months. Uh, so you had a lot of people who took it. Um, I was also perhaps most surprised by the borrowers who paid us three or four months back at once. <laughs> right. So rather large check. But again, as I said, we had uh, significantly improved the quality of the book, and many of these bars had equity, and we, we, we dangled carrots in front of them to try to get them. Um, and, and again, we made sure that they were made it very clear they were going to pay it back if, if they could. We weren't planning to forgive. Uh, and of course, by June, July, we had record job growth. You write in the book, you mentioned earlier that that this really was a much bigger problem for renters. And and want to know what, what were some of the challenges that you face as director at FHFA, uh, as well as other housing agencies to help renters get through these really difficult uh, financial times? And let me start with a, with a bigger observation, which is... Um, you had a lot more, and we can we can quibble with how accurate the data is, but you, you have a much better 
aggregation of eviction data in the rental market today and in 2020 than you did in 2008. So a lot of how job loss and distress showed up in 2008 was in mortgage delinquency. But obviously, we know renters were losing their jobs then. And it really, there was just no real aggregate statistics. So unfortunately, for good or bad, Washington often pays attention to what counts is what can be counted. And if that, and therefore, if you don't know what evictions are, they don't matter as much in a political sense, unfortunately. So for starters, there was certainly just more attention because of data collection efforts in the eviction market. For us, the biggest constraint or the biggest limitation was that we simply had no relationship with the rent with renters. Um, and I'm speaking in terms of Fannie and Freddie, of course. So for Fannie and Freddie purchase mortgages, we know who the borrower is. We know who lives in the house. The, land, the relationship between Fannie and Freddie for a renter is with the landlord. In fact, we don't even know whether the property is occupied. It could be, it could be completely empty. We don't even know whether there's a tenant in there. All we know is there's, a, there's somebody, it's a rental property, uh, obviously things like multifamily we know. So we had no way to directly reach the renters and the renters had no immediate way to reach us. Uh, I'll say as an aside, you know, we were not involved in the CDC eviction moratorium, which was done much later. Uh, and so we set up a program pretty early on where um, the landlord could come to Fannie and Freddie and say, you know, I'd like forbearance on my loan. And the agreement would be that they would not evict anybody for non-payment of rent, which, of course, still allowed them to evict people for being nuisances and, and, and normal reasons that you may evict somebody. Um, but again, there were also limitations in you know, the character of Fannie and Freddie's book. So it uh, may surprise uh, those of us who live in urban areas, but half of all renters in America live on properties of under five units. You know, the sort of high rise, New York high rise, that's not where most renters live. And so while, of course, particularly Freddie, but both GSCs have an involvement in smaller properties, it really, their portfolios are much heavily weighed toward urban big properties. And so there was just a very large amount of the rental market we, we didn't touch, couldn't touch. Um, you know, external estimates are between HUD and FHFA, Fannie, Freddie, maybe 40% of the rental market was covered. And again, that includes public housing as well. So there were real limitations. And I think going forward, there will likely be the next serious recession, some sort of renter assistance. What does it look like? How is it delivered? Is just trying to do it through the mortgage market the most efficient way? Short answer, no. Um, Mark, the GSEs earn both your criticism and your praise for the actions during the, the worst of the pandemic. In, in brief, what are some of the shortcomings that the GSEs had? And then on the other hand, how did they partner with FHFA to reduce the housing pain? It's a great, great observation. My editor actually said the same thing to me during the book process. Like, you know, you're fairly complimentary and fairly critical. And my response was, it's complicated. Now, I, and it is complicated. And I think one of the, in my views, one of the strengths of the book is the candor of what works well, what does not. And pretty much everybody comes under, even myself on occasion, some amount of uh, criticism and some amount of praise. So one of the things I think really shown through for Fannie and Freddie during COVID was once you gave them, you know, a really important single focus public policy purpose, they really rose to the occasion and they deserve a lot of credit. And they, they really kind of looked out for their employees, looked out for the marketplace. And normal data, the problem 
an underlying tension with Fanny and Freddie is that in non-stressed environments, which you know is most of the time, thankfully, they really just look at themselves as you know, how do we grab market share? How do we make lenders happy? I mean, I mean, the, and sure, they'll occasionally say some things about homeownership, things like that, but but fundamentally. Mo- the vast majority of the non-stress time, Fannie and Freddie behave like any other financial institution lender. And again, that's good and bad. You know, it's got its pros and cons, but their focus is really just on tends to be market share. So I would say the biggest knock I would have on them is this kind of like obsession with market share. So their public policy purpose. So let me, I also try to clarify a number of things in the book. Nowhere in law, statute, charter, where you find commandments to Fannie and Freddie to increase homeownership or reduce mortgage rates. That's not in the law. Those are made up things that people talk about as some implied, I guess, since they have implied guarantees, whatever that is, I guess they have implied purposes too, but they certainly don't have explicit purposes to drive up the housing market. And in fact, the structure of Fannie and Freddie and the federal home loan banks is to be counter-cyclical, to be a floor under the market uh, when others leave. And the real tension is that how do you get them to focus in the times where there's a boom? Because they don't want to sit out a boom and everybody else doesn't want them to sit out the boom. You know, I kind of describe it, you know, a little bit going back to my college years in a way of um, Fannie and Freddie are supposed to be your friends that come by the next day after a keg party and help you clean up. Unfortunately, most of the time they're there doing keg stands and getting drunker than anybody else at the party, which obviously makes it less likely they're going to be helpful the next day. So the real tension with Fannie and Freddie is how do you get them focused on their actual original core purpose, which is, again, to be there when others cannot, rather than, you know, lead the lead the lemmings over the cliff. And so it is a real tension because no organization wants to sit on its hands you know, why everybody else is making money. So I, I, you know, we really did try to refocus Fannie and Freddie on on what their actual statutory responsibilities are rather than those that have grown up around them. Mark, last question for today. What lessons might a future regulator of GSEs put into action based on this most recent crisis? Because as you mentioned just a bit ago, we, we know that down the road, we'll have another housing crisis. But you've got to focus on on strength of the institutions, um, you know, capital inequity for borrowers, for 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 mortgage insurers, for for lenders, for GSEs. Those are the foundations, and we were able to get through the crisis better. In fact, for instance, Fannie and Freddie would have failed from COVID if we had not started aggressively building capital in 2019. And so rather than the normal kind of Washington view of thinking that safety and soundness is at odds with affordability and mission, it's really the recognition that safety and soundness is instead the foundation of everything else that's being done. They aren't in conflict. In fact, they are complements. And if you allow the uh, if you allow rot in the foundation, the rest of the house is not going to stand. Thanks very much, Mark. I really, you've been a great guest. I appreciate you coming on, talking about your book. Thank you for writing the book, Shelter from the Storm. Um, And I really look forward to the next opportunity where we can uh, dig into other matters uh, about housing going forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Talk to you Friday. All right, thank you.